Our text this morning is found in Matthew 20, verses 26 through 28, how to be great in the kingdom. We looked last time when we were in Matthew at how not to be great in the kingdom, and so this is the reverse of that. And uh, we saw last time that we were in this passage that we live in an age of selfishness, of pride, where humility is often seen as weakness. And we also commented on how that attitude really has infiltrated the church And so often the focus is on self, and individualism is present amongst the Lord's people too. Many believers are drawn in and are living only for now and to satisfy self now and pleasure now, and there's no difference with the way they live and the way the world lives. And so as a result, commitment and service and sacrifice and counting the cost and enduring suffering and loyalty are in short supply. But we also said that when the Lord is truly at work amongst the people, you find that humility, you find that brokenness before the Lord. They are characteristics of true gospel ministry in places where the Lord is at work. There's a conviction over sin. There's a brokenness before the Lord. There's that meekness amongst the Lord's people. There is an acknowledgement that there is a relying on the Lord. Cannot do anything without him. And so this lesson comes here with great power. It's a powerful lesson. It was a powerful lesson for the disciples. And also it is for us this morning. The great men and women of the kingdom of God are those whose lives have been marked by humble service. You know, if you look through the scriptures, you'll find it time and time again. Let me give you some examples. Abraham, choice servant of the Lord, What does it say in Genesis 18, 27? Abraham says, indeed, now I, who am but dust and ashes, have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. When Jacob cried out to the Lord in Genesis 32, he said, I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown your servant. He says, I am not worthy. Moses, Exodus 3, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? that I should bring the the children of Israel out of Egypt. Think of Gideon called to lead his people. And he says in Judges 6, Oh my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. I am the least in my father's house. Think of King Josiah who led that great reformation. And he was told by the Lord in 2 Kings 22, Because your heart was tender." And you humbled yourself before the Lord. You tore your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you. You know, you go into the New Testament, based with John the Baptist. And what did he say to the Savior? It is he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He must increase, but I must decrease. What did Jesus say of John? Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. Humility, key in the Christian's life, key in the greatness of the kingdom. Again and again, those who are great in God's kingdom are marked by this humility. And unlike James and John, which is really the issue that we've been dealing with, 
You know, they'd come and they'd sought prominence. They'd sought glory for themselves, recognition. They wanted greatness. They'd made a play for power, even bringing in their mother to help them, trying to manipulate circumstances and follow their ambition. And the Bible says, doesn't it, and indeed James wrote this, which shows a great work was done. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And the Lord Jesus is making it clear that true greatness in his sight is pursued through humility, obedience, submission, and service. And so that's the lesson. And that's as it is. How to be great in the kingdom, that humility is vital. I'm just going to split our text this morning up very simply into two parts. There is the exhortation, the urgent instruction, and then you've got the ultimate example of the Lord Jesus. So the exhortation and then the example. So let's look first at the exhortation, verses 26 to 27. Jesus, after outlining all that was wrong with the attitudes of the world as they pursue greatness, he says in verse 26, it shall not be so among you. He lays it down very clearly. The world's ruthless approach to securing greatness that has got no place amongst the Lord's people. He lays that down so clearly. You know, in John 18, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. He says that his kingdom is, is so opposite. It is so different from this broken world where people seek to elevate themselves and stamp on everyone else in the process. But as when explains, in the kingdom of God, the great men are not sitting on top of lesser men. They are bearing lesser men on their backs. It's a total reversal. And so believers shouldn't seek greatness in the kingdom as the world does. But sadly, so often many do. Many like James and John, they want to be the, the center of attention. They want the honor and the prestige and the power and the control. And they might well get some people to think they're great but not in the eyes of the Lord. And when the true evaluation is made in the end, the true nature of who they are and what they're about will be revealed. And so it's not to be like this in the kingdom. And he says, it's not to be like this in the kingdom, but, verse 26, whoever desires to become great among you. Now, this is important. You know, there are some who have struggled with what Jesus says here. Because they say, well, he's just condemn the pursuit of greatness in terms of the world, why does he then say this? Is it right to want to be great in God's sight? Isn't that ambition a stumbling block? Well, Jesus teaches that there are such things as right ambitions, godly desires, something we see in Scripture. The Lord Jesus never endorses sinful ambition. That's why he rebukes James and John. But he does say that we are to pursue the right things to desire to advance in the right things, to grow and go on to the glory of God. You know, if you were to look in the New Testament, 2 John 1, 8, look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we work for, but that we may receive a full reward. Or 1 Corinthians 9, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it, and everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. It's right to strive and to go on. 1 Corinthians 3, if anyone builds 
on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. So as believers, we should desire to strive to go on to glorify the Lord, to do what pleases him, to pursue those things that he has promised, the prize that is set before us. But the issue is our motivation, the condition of our hearts. You know, when you seek advance for your own greatness or status or power or comfort, then it's wrong. But if you seek to go on with the Lord and seek greatness and glory on his terms, on the path that he has ordained, that path, by the way, is a path of sacrifice and suffering of the cross. To seek greatness that way sees the death of self. I wonder, do you understand that? The death of self. You know, there are many who want glory, but without the cross. But following Christ is the way of the cross. 1 Corinthians 4, Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. He who judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveals the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. So only God knows the heart. Only God truly knows our motive and can see why we do and why we did what we did. But there are indications. You know, if a person really loves the Lord Jesus and seeks to give their life for him, to spend and be spent, to serve and follow with devotion, and does so on a path of self-sacrifice and humility and suffering, then it indicates a good motive. You know, there is an example of a right desire that we find in 1 Timothy 3.1. This is a faithful saying, if a man desires the position of a bishop, means a pastor, elder, leader, he desires a good work. It's a good desire. It's a desire that God gives. And it's a desire that is affirmed by the church, the Lord's people. And so that God-given desire and calling, the church looks at the person's life and evaluates whether they have the qualities and gifts to serve in that capacity. And so we see that is there. Friend, to be honest, the desire of my heart is to serve the Lord Jesus and to serve him whilst here and to give him all the glory throughout eternity. You know, it is my longing to use what he has given me for the proclamation of his name and the advancement of his kingdom. Now, only the Lord truly knows my heart. And you can judge for yourself whether it's a genuine motive for me to please the master whom I love and who gave himself for me. But for any minister of the gospel, you examine the path, whether there is that submission and service and humility. And it's true not just for ministers of the gospel, but for all of us to examine the conditions of our heart. And Jesus says, you know, look, if there is that desire to be great before the Lord, what should he do? Let him be your servant. That's the path. Let me ask you this morning, who are you serving? In your life at the moment, who are you really serving? You know, if you say you love the Lord Jesus and that you're all out for him and you're following him, who are you serving and how does it show itself? 
Our time is short, and what and who are we living for? You know, some people are exhausted trying to find ways to relax. You find that in the world. They're seeking relaxation, and they get more and more stressed about it. But as believers, friends, our desire should be to give ourselves away to the Lord to the end, to serve him in any way we can for as long as we can where he has placed us. Do you know, you find that some people are always looking for the perfect opportunity, the perfect place to serve, and so they're always looking, and the grass is always greener somewhere else. Conditions have got to be right, and what happens is they never end up doing anything. But there's no ideal place in which to serve God except the place where he has set you down right now. And you know, such a perspective, when you understand that, it transforms sweeping a floor into divine activity. We're doing it for his glory. That's a tremendous liberation from the fear that life is happening somewhere else and, and we're missing out and a tremendous motivation just to get on with obeying the Lord here and now, wherever God has placed you, we are to respond in obedience to his purposes. And so Jesus says, if you want to be great in the kingdom, then serve in that way. And the word for servant is diakonos. It's the word from which we get deacon. But at this time when Jesus uses it, it was just a, a secular word. It didn't have any religious connotations at all. It was a word that was used to describe just regular, basic service, menial tasks, whether it was taking out the rubbish or cleaning or serving a meal, whatever it was. And it wasn't a dishonoring term but it was to emphasize willing service regardless of the task. It was a term that was then sanctified by the Lord and would become, in fact, the dominant word in the New Testament to speak of the service of believers. This word for menial, lowly, willing service. In other words, God is looking for those who come to serve willingly, humbly, and to his glory. Do you know, Paul is one of the most remarkable examples of this attitude. In 1 Corinthians 4, he writes this in verse 1, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ. When you dig into that word, the word he uses refers, it's a, it's a picture of a galley slave on a ship who would be chained below deck and would be pulling the oars in darkness and often just be whipped or beaten to increase speed. And what he says is this, may it be said of me that I am a lowly galley slave in chains, but I am rowing for the Lord. And Paul had known great works of the Lord, great blessing of the Lord in his life. He'd also known great suffering. He'd known opposition and pain and anxiety and disappointment and betrayal. But in all of it, he had a right view of himself. He wrote earlier in 1 Corinthians 3, who then is Paul? A nobody, a servant. Genuine humility before the Lord. And it was so unlike the super apostles at that time who were sweeping into the church at Corinth and they were just so full of themselves and boastful of their wisdom and their strength and their authority. But the reality was they knew nothing of greatness in terms of the kingdom of God. Theirs was the pride and attitude of the world despised of the Lord. There was a book which had and still has a great impact upon me. And I read it in my younger years. It's called Spiritual Leadership by Oswald Sanders. It's a very rich book. And in it, he writes this. 
Let every day be a day of humility. Condescend to all the weaknesses and infirmities of your fellow creatures. Cover their frailties. Love their excellencies. Encourage their virtues. Relieve their wants. Rejoice in their prosperities. Be compassionate to their distress. Receive their friendship. Overlook their unkindness. Forgive their malice. Be a servant of servants and condescend to do the lowliest offices of the lowest of mankind. True humility. And in that book, he also quotes a diary of an evangelist. And this evangelist writes the following. He says, if I appear great in their eyes, the Lord is most graciously helping me to see how absolutely nothing I am without him. And he is helping to keep me little in my own eyes, He does use me, but I am so concerned that he uses me and that it is not me by which the work is done. The axe cannot boast of the trees it cuts down. It could do nothing but for the woodsman. He made it, he sharpened it, he used it. The moment he throws it aside, it just becomes only old iron once again. Oh, that I may never lose sight of this. A humble heart set on that kingdom path. And Jesus says, that is how it must be in the kingdom. And then he goes even further, look at verse 27. Whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. And he uses this word, which is below even the word for serving diakonos, and everyone knew what it was to serve as a slave, the dreadful suffering. The dreadful reality of that, but it was a a graphic description of how committed they were to be in serving one another and serving him. And Paul saw his life like that. He was bought with a price. He, He wasn't his own. He belonged to the Savior. Friends, that is basic. If we're believers this morning, we have been bought with a price. We are not our own. Romans 14, 8, if we live We live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. You know, and Paul calls himself a slave of Christ, pouring out his life for the sake of the gospel, doing all for the Lord and for the glory to come. The eternal weight of glory, which was so far beyond the light affliction of his current circumstances. You know, there are many who want that glory, and as I've said, don't want the pain, They don't want the discomfort. They don't want the inconvenience in their lives. They don't want to sacrifice for the gospel, but they do want the blessing. Friend, what are the motives for doing what we do? As well explained, scars are the authentic marks of faithful discipleship. A lady called Amy Carmichael wrote a beautiful poem, and part of it says this, Hast thou no wound, no wound, no scar? Yet as the master shall the servant be, and pierced are the feet that follow me. But thine are whole. Can he have followed far who has no wound or scar? In other words, there's cost. And Jesus says here, the cost of true greatness in the kingdom is humble, selfless service. Friends, time is short. Eternity is long. What are we doing? The cost and following of pursuing this greatness for the glory of Christ may bring persecution. For many of our brethren around the world, it brings great persecution. For some, even death. 
Even in our situation, sometimes the cost can be isolation, it can be loneliness, it can be rejection. When a person is so taken up with Jesus and committed to doing what he has called them to do, it means that the pull and draw of the world becomes less, and not everyone can understand that. And there's criticism that can come as well. But the one who desires to be all that God would have them be, to serve with the whole heart, to be great in the kingdom, desires a good thing because it means honoring him, but it means giving your life over to Christ unreservedly. And there's a humility, there's a submission, and there's a readiness to obey because we love him. And he's everything to us. He should be everything to us. Even if there were no rewards, we would serve like this because of him. I wonder if you understand that. Ask yourself, as I asked myself this morning, what sacrifice am I making to serve Jesus Christ? How does my life reflect my love for him? J.C. Ralph said, true greatness consists not in receiving, but giving. Not in being served, but serving. Not in sitting still and being ministered to, but in going about and ministering to others. That's the exhortation. True greatness, humble service, service that costs but glorifies God. And then as we draw together, the second part is the example, verse 28. Just as, those words so vital, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. You say that you love the Lord Jesus. You say that you abide in him. You say that he is precious to you. Then listen to 1 John 2. Whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. His life was utterly abandoned as an act of humble, selfless service on behalf of others. He thought it not robbery, something to be grasped, to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. He took upon himself the form of a servant, was found in fashion as a man. He humbled himself, was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Do you know the sovereign of the universe, the sovereign of all eternity came and touched himself human flesh, the perfect, pure, holy son of God came to save sinners and to bear sin on behalf of his people on the cross, the greatest humiliation of all. And that's why he is the greatest. That's why he is the most exalted. He is the most glorious. He is without equal because he is the humblest of all. The son of man who came to serve, not to be served. He didn't come like other kings. Do you remember when he stood before Pilate and Pilate asked Jesus at his trial, are you a king? You know, Pilate looked at Jesus and he didn't see a king. He didn't see a kingdom. He seemingly had nothing by worldly standards, no wealth, no possessions, no forces. And the Lord Jesus replies, my kingdom is not of this world. Do you know, there's a wonderful verse in Luke 22, 27, where Jesus says, I am among you as the one who serves. That's a glorious thing. The Son of God, the Lord of glory, and yet he came to serve. You think of the upper room. He stoops 
to wash the feet of the disciples. They're so self-seeking that they wouldn't wash each other's feet, but the Savior, the Son of God, demonstrates staggering humility when he himself gets down to wash theirs. He's the pattern. He's the example. Forfeiting comfort to meet the needs of others. The Lord Jesus did this to the giving of his life, the ultimate sacrifice. In John 15, he said, Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. You know, what manner of people should we be if we say that we follow Jesus? But you know, there's more which we must not miss. The death of Jesus was much more than just an example of selflessness. The Holy Spirit makes it clear that the cross is more than just the demonstration of a man willing to humble himself to death for the sake of others. The Spirit of God reveals more about the work of Christ on the cross that he gave his life not just as an example, but as a ransom. And that's one of the most significant and mighty statements at the redeeming work of the Lord Jesus. His death would be a substitutionary, ransoming, redeeming act on the cross. He was actually accomplishing the deliverance of his people. 1 Peter 2 speaks of Christ suffering, leaving us an example, but more, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. It was a saving act, a divine rescue. And the word ransom here, it speaks of the price for the release of a slave. You and I, friends, and maybe you're still in this condition if you're not in Christ, were slaves of sin. Slaves of the world and the flesh and death and the enemy. And Christ paid the ransom to release all who would ever believe from that bondage. And if we are in Christ this morning, then now we know, Romans 8, the glorious liberty of the children of God. It's a staggering thought. His death was not just an example, but a ransom. A slave could never earn a way of paying for his release or freedom. Any money he received would often just not even cover the basic necessities of life. And like us, we could never, never buy our freedom from sin and death and hell and the enemy. Only God could deliver us. And he sent his son to pay the price that we could never pay. He willingly came as the ransom for all his people. And such was his love for us that he humbled himself to death on the cross to do all that was necessary to deal with our sin and give us life and liberty in him. That's why it's so important to understand we are not our own. We have been bought with a price. We have been redeemed and ransomed by Jesus. 1 Peter 1, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. It's amazing if you look in verse 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You know, he gave his life as a ransom for, that means he gave it in exchange. There's a great exchange which takes place. It was his death for our death. His life for our life. He took our sin on himself. What did we sing? In my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a saviour. 
and it underlines the intention and the purpose of the cross is fulfilled, he is an actual Savior. There is no sort of theory about it. He is an actual Savior, so all who believe in Jesus are saved. The design of the cross to save those purpose was complete. He gave his life in the place of those who would save. And we stand under the weight of our sin and the wrath of God. We fully deserve death, but Jesus took our place. He became our substitute. That's the glory of the gospel. Not just that Jesus died to express a a loving sentiment. He died in our place. And if we are in Christ this morning, we can know that our Savior gave himself and has wiped out, we looked at it earlier, the handwriting of requirements against us. He has taken our sin, past, present, future, and nailed it to the cross. And that's why when the enemy comes to you, and when our own hearts accuse us, are you really forgiven? Does God really love you? You know, do you really have a place in glory, someone like you? When you hear those whispers, you remind yourself that Jesus stood in your place, took all the wrath and punishment that you deserved, paid the price, paid our ransom, and we are redeemed both now and forever. We need not fear judgment. It lies behind us. All is done. And we are safe for time and for eternity. And surely our response should be, Lord, my life is yours. Let me serve you. And because of this, the Lord Jesus, who humbled himself even to death on the cross, who endured the suffering for the joy that was set before him, now what do we read in Philippians 2? God also has highly exalted him, given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And in proportion to his humility is his glory. That's the principle. No one who gives much for Jesus will ever have cause to regret it, both now or through all eternity. Greatness in the kingdom is in proportion to humility and selfless service. The true follower of Jesus, as one says, doesn't grab for glory, but humbles himself as a servant. And friend, when we are walking close to the Lord Jesus, we will have that same heart and attitude, committing to doing the Father's will, enjoying the suffering for the joy and the glory which is ahead of us. Everything that Jesus commands us to do here is a call to trust him, to live in his strength, to rest upon him. And that's what it is. And so I ask you, are we truly humble? What is our idea of true greatness this morning? Where is your heart? Are you serving Christ with a whole heart? And even though it might mean a path of pain and suffering, the way of the cross, we follow because we love him. J.C. Ryle has amazing ways of putting it all together so succinctly. This is what he says. Happy is that man who is truly humble, strives to do good in his day, walks in the steps of Jesus and rests all his hopes on the ransom paid for him by Christ's blood. Such a man is a true Christian. Are you a true Christian? 
You know, we feel the challenge of that maybe this morning. We feel far away from that standard that we fall short, but we can only live this life as his life is worked out in and through us by grace. And so may it be that as we seek his name, that he would be glorified in us, that we indeed might be those who exalt Christ and would look to that day of glory when in that capacity without any challenge of sin, we will be able to praise him forever and ever. Friend, we have been bought with a price. We have been set on a path to glory. The natural outworking is to serve him, to give all for him, because he deserves all from us. May it be that we are those who serve him like that and aspire to that greatness in the kingdom by being humble servants. Amen.